If you turn to Joshua chapter 1 today, changing pace a bit from the book of Philippians for, for this Sunday, I want to talk about uh, what it means to be a successful church from, from God's point of view. What would God say is a successful church? I remember uh, some time ago hearing um, the former football coach and NFL commentator John Madden uh, being asked uh, some questions. This particular question was, um, what does it take to have a successful football game? And I suppose, you know, the, they're expecting some kind of strategy or something, and, and Madden, with his uh, usual brilliant analysis, said, well, it comes down to this. We score some points, they score some points. If at the end of the game, we score more points than they score points, we have a good chance of success. <laughs> that was John Madden for you. Duh. So what does it take to have a successful church? What does that mean for us? And I think that one overarching term would be faithfulness. I want to start with uh, Joshua chapter 1. Uh, this is a very instructive passage, I think, as we consider what, what success looks like from God's point of view. A successful church or a successful believer is one which trusts in God and obeys His word. So we need both faith and faithfulness. Faith is what we believe, and faithfulness is how we live out what we believe. <clears throat> so we're in Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9 today. And under faithfulness, we see the need to follow the leader. So it begins here with, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Now Moses had led them uh, out of Egypt to the wilderness, wandering up to the very doorstep of the promised land, but he was not allowed to enter in. And now Moses has died. What next? What happens now that the leader is dead? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now what? Now do we just give up or what? Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, get busy, move out, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. So this is about following the leader. Humanly speaking, the new leader was Joshua. But the real leader is God. This is God in control. He's talking about Moses, my servant. Moses led them, but God was the God who led Moses. God was the one who was in charge. God was the one who was supplying. God was the one who was protecting. God was the real leader. And now there's a new leader named Joshua. But the real leader is always God. There was a change of leadership here, humanly speaking, between Moses and Joshua. There was a, a change of men, but it was the same God. Here at EMB, 
there's been a change of, humanly speaking, leadership of the church. Uh, especially in the last four years or so since Jay left and then Mark left and then Scott left and I'm here for a temporary. So there's a change in human leadership, but the point is God is still God. God is still the leader here. And he's the one to whom we look. I was reading the account of Gladys Alward, who was a missionary to China many years ago, and uh, was having to flee when the uh, Japanese invaded China and the Yangcheng province. She led a group of over 100 orphans with just the help of one assistant to safety. And so um, it was a, a huge task. Uh, it was written about in the book, uh, The Hidden Price of Greatness. And uh, one excerpt from that says, During Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yangcheng, she grappled with despair as never before. After passing a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. A 13-year-old girl in the group reminded her of their much-loved story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. But I am no Moses, cried Gladys in desperation. Of course you aren't, said the girl, but Jehovah is still God. And the same is true for us. Uh, it doesn't matter who the human leader is. God is still God. And he is the real leader of this church. If you are pinning your hopes on the next pastor who will come, to lead you to success, your hope is misplaced. Never place it on a man. Place it only in God. God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who will bring success to this church. Now, he may well use the next pastor, and I, I hope and pray he does, and I know uh, Warren and the pastor's church team are looking for that man, but he is not your hope. He's going to make mistakes. Your hope is in God. There's a, there's a promise of success here that uh, God issues, issues to Joshua and the children of Israel, a promise of success. And so we read in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness to this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I, which I swore to their fathers to give to them. There is a promise of success because God is faithful. And we trust in Him and in His faithfulness. He is going to do what He promised. Success is based upon the promise and the faithfulness of God. 
And Jesus says in the New Testament, I will build my church. And yes, God used Joshua and the Israelites to bring about the conquest of Canaan, but it was God who was giving them the land. And in the New Testament, God uses people to perform all his will and his mission, but it is Jesus who is building his church. And so our trust is in him. And we just want to be faithful to him. He says uh, three times that he's giving this to them. Verse 2 the end of verse 2, to the land which I am giving to them. Verse 3, every place the sole of your foot tread upon, I have, I have given to you. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Over and over he's emphasizing he's giving the land to them. This is their inheritance, giving it to them. But it was a gift that had to be taken. They couldn't just sit back in the wilderness. They had to cross that Red Sea. They had to march around Jericho. They had to do all the things that God was going to lead them to do. It was a gift that had to be taken. And this meant war. This meant enemies. This meant giants. This meant rivers to cross and walls to overcome. This meant Hunger and loss and hard work and finally success. And the point is that success does not come easily or cheaply. It has to be taken. So God says, I will give you success, but you, you have to do your part in it. Just as we saw recently in sanctification, he's the one who works in us both to will and to do of his good work. We still have to do of his good will. And so it's a gift that has to be taken. And God has success for us, and he will be the one who will guarantee this success. He will give us everything that we need for success, but we have to do our part in obedience to him. So the measure of success, how does God measure success. It says in um, verse 6, 7, and 9, verse 6, be strong and of good courage. And then verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. So, Three times he's emphasizing you need to be strong and of good courage. And verse 9 tells us how to be able to have that strength and that courage. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Knowing that we have the presence of God with us all the time. That gives us the strength and the courage to carry on, to know that we can be a success and have success as a church. The Lord is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But most interesting to me is verse 7, the middle of these three statements of being strong and courageous. 
And notice that verse 7, it is emphatic. It says, only be strong and very courageous. Why? What is, what's the reason for the strength and courage? Why is strength and courage needed? Now, they're getting ready to go into Canaan. There are enemies there. There are giants there. And our first thought would be, they need strength and courage because of what they are about to encounter. They need to be courageous about this. But that has nothing to do with why God tells them to be strong and courageous. See verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous that you may do according to all the law of Moses. Why is there strength and courage needed? Because the battle is not out there against them. The battle is in here, in our own hearts. Be strong and courageous that you may do. And our natural tendency is not to fully obey God. It's to follow our own way. We need strength, spiritual strength. We need the courage that comes from the Lord to make those decisions, to take those stands to fight against the temptation that rises up within us, to fight against the old man and sin nature. It takes courage, strength from the Lord to do that. And whether we individually or we as a church will be a success is determined on what is going on inside of our hearts before anything else. Only be strong and very courageous that you may do according to all the law of Moses. Faithfulness to God's word is also a measure of success in God's eyes. In order to be strong and very courageous, we need the word of God and obedience to the word of God. So he says in verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That was true for Joshua leading them into battle. It was about the word of God, not about the armor that they had, not about the spears that they had, Not about the battle plan that they had. It was about the word of God that they had. And so he tells them to be faithful to the word of God. This is success in God's eyes. And as we as a church are faithful to the word of God, he says that is success. So he says to do, not just to study the word. That you may do according to all that is written in it. Do, not just study As James 1 says, a person who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the Bible, and like a mirror, and then just walks away from it without any change, it does does him no good. Hasn't made any difference in their life. And so we need to be looking into the word to the point that it changes us. We, We do it, not just study it. Secondly, it's all, not just parts, that you may do according to all that is written in it. And we all have our favorite parts. You probably have your favorite verses. But there are some parts which are more uncomfortable for us. Some verses, passages, which are harder to find, harder to follow, I mean. They're 
difficult verses. But do all of it, not just part. So success in God's eyes is, first of all, faithfulness to Him as the leader, and then faithfulness to His Word. That we might be strong and courageous to fight the battle that is within, verse 7, and that we might be faithful to the Word of God, verse 8. And then he says, meditate on it. Not just read it. It's good to read the Bible, but meditate on it. That is, spend time in the Word. Let it, let it soak and marinate in your soul. Take it with you. Think about it through the day. It's good to have a you know, Bible reading plan, whatever it is, whether you're trying to read through the Bible in the year or however you do it. But take some portion of that with you every day Thinking about it, maybe write down a verse on an index card. It's something I like to do. And just take it with you throughout the day to think about that and ask God, how does this impact my life? What would you have me do, Lord, in light of this truth that you've given me this day? Meditate on the Word of God. And then day and night, not just sometimes. I remember... uh, uh, a fellow telling me one, di- one day, this is Sunday morning, he said, I was looking all over for my Bible this morning, and then I finally remembered, oh yeah, I left it in my truck from last week. I got to thinking, you mean that's the last time you saw your Bible? Was when you put it in your truck last week to come to church? Day and night, not just sometimes. When's the last time you opened your Bible? Are you doing it daily, day and night? Now, of course, it doesn't mean that you're constantly carrying this around with you necessarily, but you are carrying it around in here, right? It's with you. And so if you are meditating on it, thinking about it day and night, it should, it should impact your whole life. It should impact everything that you're doing, all your decisions. It should impact you as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, a wife, as a, as a worker, as a Teacher, whatever you're doing, it should be impacting your life day and night. Meditate on it. And the result is success. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Success in God's eyes. This is what he calls success. Faithfulness to him. Faithfulness to his word. The Bible is not meant simply to inform us, but to transform us. And as we're in the Word, God is using it to mold us and make us into the image of His Son. As this is true, all this is true, both of us individually and as for us collectively as a church body. This is what success is in God's eyes. Well, sometimes the question of fruit comes up in this area of success. What, what kind of fruit will we have if we're successful? And so I want to think about um, this, looking at several examples. So physical or material fruit may or may not result from our faith or faithfulness. So for Joshua, for instance, when, when uh, Joshua and Israelites were faithful to God in his word, they, they did exactly what God said, they had success. You think about the first battle they had was against Jericho. No one had ever defeated 
the walls of Jericho. So God tells him, I want you to dress all up, get ready for this parade, and go march around it, and then come back, take everything off, and that's, you're done for the day. Day after day after day, till the seventh day when they blew the trumpets and shouted, and the, the walls came a-tumbling down. But every day they had to be faithful to what God had said, even though it would make no sense to them from a battle plan perspective to just walk around it. It was obedience to God that caused the walls to come down. And so as they were obedient to him, faithful to him, success. The very next place that they had battle with was a smaller village of Ai, and they were defeated. Why? Because there was sin in their midst. Because Achan had stolen the treasure that was supposed to be dedicated to God alone and had buried it under his tent. And so they suffered this defeat because of, of sin in their midst. And so it went throughout the, the conquest. When, whenever they obeyed, they succeeded. When they didn't, they fell. And so success for them was found in their faithfulness to God and to the word. But faithfulness to God and His Word does not always mean material or physical growth. In fact, look at uh, John chapter 6. John 6, starting at verse 53. Jesus had just said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Verse 53 says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. For he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now imagine if you're hearing this for the first time. We're familiar with this passage, or should be somewhat familiar with this passage, and we know post cross and resurrection with the New Testament finished, looking back that Jesus is talking about his sacrifice here. His, we celebrate this in communion, his body which was given, which is the bread that we break, his, his blood that was shed for us, which we celebrate in the cup. And we partake of those and we identify with the death of Christ on our behalf. And anyone who does that, they are saved. So, he, he's talking about this, and now they don't get it. They, don't, they can't understand it at this point. But the point I want to make here is that they still needed to believe what he said, even though they didn't understand it yet, just like we do. If there are things that we don't understand what God says, what does he mean by that? We still believe it because it's true, because God says it. Anyway, so he, he's telling them this, and then verse 57 he says, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, 
Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So back to verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples turned back and walked with him no more. This was too hard for them to take. Now he's losing people. He had just gotten a huge crowd. He had fed the 5,000 earlier in John chapter 6. That's how it begins. Now, now you can picture Jesus' PR man, his campaign manager at this point, entering in and saying, now, now Jesus, you don't want to be talking about this. Look what's happening. You see these people leaving? This is not good for business. You need to, to set up this feeding station where every day people can come and get the bread and so forth and, and set up a medical tent here. You can do all your miracles all day long over here, feeding them, healing them. You'll have crowds like you've never believed. You can have such success. But would that have been success? Only outwardly. Only humanly speaking. But not in God's eyes. It would have not been success. So success is not always measured by the outward means. Numbers, for instance. It would not always be outward success. Jesus was fully successful in what he did. And people walked away. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, um, For when one of you says, I am of Paul, or another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. It's up to God. God is the one who gives the increase. That's the one we look to. It's not any man. It's not your next pastor. It's not some brilliant plan we come up with. It is God who gives the increase. And so our part is simply to be faithful to him and trust him. It's God who, who gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, I want to end with thinking about the seven churches. What did we see in them? If you remember back in the, the spring as uh, I was teaching through Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, I just want to remind us of a few things. As we, One of the things we looked at back then was um, Jesus said, I know your works and I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. 
And in the bad news, he told them the things that they needed to shore up, change, repent of. And in the good news, he told them these things are commendable. These things are good. And uh, for five of those seven churches, he had something good to say. Two of them he had nothing but bad things to say. But five of them, he had some good things to say. And so I'm just kind of um, consolidating those things in these four statements here of what he said to those churches. But something that is interesting is what is missing in his, in his commendation for them. And his saying, this is good. What is missing in that from what we typically look at? When we think of a successful church, what are the kinds of things we are thinking of? And Jesus makes zero mention of the number of people, the attendance, the budget, the offering. Nothing about that. Nothing. It doesn't matter where they were a big church or a small church. Had a big budget, a small budget. Where they were growing or decreasing. That had nothing to do with what he called success. And so we can get too round bound up in this, thinking that material success equals success. It may or it may not. It is spiritual success that we want. So what does that look like? Now, we understand that like the buildings that we have are important. We're grateful for this beautiful sanctuary for the, the rest of the building uh, that we have here. And we need to keep it up and maintain it and so forth. We're grateful for that. We, we need income, so we have offerings and so forth. But um, So we're not saying that those things are not important. They are very important. But the point is that they are not the most important thing. So what is more important then? What, what is mentioned by the Lord of the church, what does he commend? Well, first of all, he says a successful church is known for living and guarding the truth. This is something which is true of all, the, all five of the churches that he commends. All of them, he says, were living and guarding the truth. Some wording or another of that for each of those churches. That they were holding fast to the truth. They were guarding it, that they were living it, that they were proclaiming it. And that's what we need to do, especially with the gospel. Loving it and living it. Uh, claiming it and proclaiming it. It is the gospel which is the power of God to salvation. That simple yet profound message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And he did so by dying on the cross for our sins. That whoever will put their faith, their, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that message is true today as it ever was. True for all of us. So living and guarding the truth of the gospel by proclaiming it and by evangelism. By telling other people the gospel. Are we doing that? And in addition to the truth of the gospel, the church needs to, to 
teach and live and guard and proclaim the whole counsel of God, all of this, that, that this Bible, which is without error, would be our sole guide, our all-sufficient guide to all of life and godliness, to all, all that we need as a church, all that we need as individuals to guide our lives, our thinking, our decisions. What does God say? So the, to the degree that we, we believe in the Word and we live the Word and we proclaim the Word and we guard the Word to the degree that we do that, to that degree we are successful in God's eyes. Secondly, the Lord of the church talked about commendable is having love for God and others. And to remind us that the great, greatest commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. The love for God and for others. In fact, he, uh, one of the negative things he says about the church of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus was great at guarding the truth. They couldn't stand anyone who would... Uh, mess with the truth. But Jesus said of them, you've left your first love. So we need not just to have to guard the truth and live it and so forth to be a success, but we need to do it in love. We need to have love, first of all, for God, fully loving Him, full devotion to God, and then for others as well. That, God says, is success. In fact, he told his disciples in John 13, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. So living and guarding the truth, loving God and others, and then thirdly, wholehearted service. For instance, uh, Revelation 2, 3 says to the church of Ephesus, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. So they've labored, uh, worked to the point of exhaustion, that word means. To labor to that degree, he says, for my namesake. And that's the secret of it. It's not doing it for other people. It's not even doing it for the church. But laboring for my namesake. Are you doing it for Jesus? Is the question. Revelation 2.19 to the church of Thyatira, he said, I know your works, your love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. They were increasing in their service and their, and their works. And Jesus says, this is commendable. That's a success. A ongoing, wholehearted service for others. And then finally, those that were counted successful were marked by faith and faithfulness. Faith is what we truly believe. Faithfulness is how we live because of what we truly believe. How we do church because of what we believe. How we make decisions because of what we believe. How we obey because of what we believe. I mean, so we come full circle, really, 
It all comes back down to faithfulness to God and His Word. Are we loving Him? Are we following His Word? Are we being obedient to it? Do we have true faith? In uh, Hebrews 11, that hall of fame of faith, we read such things as, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith Noah prepared an ark. By faith Abraham obeyed. By, by faith Abraham went out. By faith Abraham offered up. By faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith Israel passed through the Red Sea and and on and on. So the description of their faith was not about what they believed. The description of their faith was how they lived because of what they believed. Faithfulness. How are we living by what we believe? Not just what we say we believe, but what our lives say we really believe. So how are we doing? How successful is our church well, you know, it's just like with uh, individually, how successful are you in your Christian life? None of us are perfect, right? We're all sinners. None of us are perfect. The same is true of any church. There's no perfect church. You know why? Made up of us sinners, right? There's no perfect church. But we should be wanting to, to grow spiritually to become, in God's eyes, more and more successful. So, how are we doing? Well, um, in this uh, past year, you know, the transition team made up of uh, 21 different individuals from among the congregation um, met over a six-month period of time. And one of the things we, we looked at toward the end of our time was, what are the strengths and weaknesses of our church? And here's what the transition team came up with. I'll, uh, I'm just going to give you the top strengths and weaknesses. Because there were certain four strengths and five weaknesses that were head and shoulders above the rest. So the, for the strengths, we have, number one, Bible and gospel-centered expository teaching and preaching. It's something that's highly valued here. In, uh, and something that we would want to look for in the next pastor who would come, someone who would be an expositor of the Word of God, something we look for in teachers here who are teaching our classes, that it will be truly teachers of the Word. That's highly prized, and that's a good thing here uh, because we want to be faithful to the Word of God. Secondly, another strength is we are a welcoming and loving congregation. Uh, third is our Awana and Children's program. And the fourth strength that we identified was strong worship. So those are our top four areas of strength. Now, how about our weaknesses? Where, where do we need some work on to be a more successful church? And here's what the transition team came up with. Our weakest point, personal evangelism. We're not sharing the gospel. We need to share the gospel. It's the one message Jesus gave us to take into all the world. The gospel. 
um, along with that, it's not included in this, but also the need, one of the top needs we have that surfaced was training in personal evangelism. The idea that people aren't doing it because they're, they're not trained to do it. So we need to have some training in that. How, how are we going to do that? Um, the next thing is, um, for weakness, is church discipline and conflict resolution. That is, the need for more concern about the spiritual well-being of each other. How are we doing spiritually? And we don't talk about that with each other. We, and we don't encourage one another as we ought to in that way. And especially if there's something which is a sin issue in the church, it would tend to be ignored instead of addressed. There's, if there's conflict in the church, whether it's between individuals or between groups of people, it needs to be resolved. It's been a, an ongoing weakness in the church. Number three for weakness, corporate prayer. This is not a praying church. So when I first came, I was very disappointed to find ten people show up for the monthly prayer meeting. Once a month, we have a corporate prayer meeting. Ten people showed up. So I knew it was a fluke. It had to get better next month. There were eight the next month. This is not a praying church. How are we going to expect God to bless if we won't even ask Him for it? The fourth weakness was small group. It's interesting that one of the further down strengths was seen to be the small group ministry that it's impacting people within the church. And yet, one of our weakest points is small group organization, vision, and training. A real sense among the transition team that something needs to be done with our small group. Some help needs to be given to it. And then... Uh, the fifth and final one I'll mention today is poor Sunday school attendance. So we highly value the Word of God, expository teaching, but we don't show up for it. We want great Sunday school teachers, and many do not avail themselves of it. That's a weakness. These are some things we can work on. We do have some strengths. There's some really great things about this church. But there are some weaknesses too. If we want to be a successful church in God's eyes. I'm not talking about numbers. God may or may not bring that. I'm talking about pleasing Him, first of all. Let's pray. Lord, You have been always faithful to us and in every way so, Lord, we, we bow before you and we want to say, Lord, we desire to be faithful to you. Oh, Lord, would you work that in us individually and, and as a church body, a church family. Lord, thank you for the successes that you've given. But we, we desire for your glory, for your namesake, Lord, that you would cause us to be more successful 
in your sight. And Lord, we just commit these things to you and ask that you would work among us, work in us to bring that about to your glory. In Jesus' name we